Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to our weekly Women Today podcast. On the programme this week, we've had rather heated discussions about breastfeeding. We heard about Viking women and the influence of their culture on our own today. And we've learned what a bravag, a bart and a hooli are. But first, we ended the week with a candid and inspiring chat with musician John Gregory about his experiences dealing with depression. John, thank you so much for coming in oh, today. Oh, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. So as we just mentioned, uh, you are and have been very honest and vocal about your experience over the years. Why is that important to you? Um, I th- well, I think there's so many people who suffer from depression and uh, unfortunately there is still a degree of stigma that surrounds it. And going back to, I think it was something like 2008, I wrote an article when I was still at Isle of Man newspapers about my experiences and I got more feedback from that one article than... Uh, all the other articles I did while I was there combined and with people sharing their stories and uh, I wanted to be as open and honest as I could in terms of what it was like to have depression and also to let people know that this is an illness that could affect anybody of any age. If you if you have depression, it's, it's not your fault. Uh, you often feel guilty if you do have it because then you're ill but you know it's it it is another illness really and and um Really, I think my message was that, you know, we need to talk about this a lot more. There should be no stigma whatsoever surrounding it anymore. I think you're absolutely right. Can you pinpoint the first time that you experienced depression? Yeah, I think I was 19 years old and I I had no idea what was wrong with me, actually, apart from I had a very low mood and um, just that was lasting for quite a long time. I had no real concept. Of course, I'd heard the phrase depression, but I had no real concept of what the illness was like. And I probably just presumed it just as, as a lot of people do, that it means people are just a bit fed up. And of mm. course, it's not that at all. I can't stress that enough. There is such a difference between someone saying, oh, I'm depressed, Man United's just lost a football match, than to someone who's got a depressive illness. It's it's chalk and cheese. And so um, luckily, I think I, I had some counselling at the time and the the episode did, did pass and I just, you know, recovered uh, and I was fine feeling absolutely normal and then two years it came back with a vengeance really and uh, that was when I was 21 and uh, uh, it led to a period I was uh, off work for six months and I had a short um, stay in hospital as well during that time. And did, did that help being in, uh, hospitalised? Yeah it, it definitely did I mean at the time I didn't really re- realise what was what was going on but in hindsight um, I think it was extremely valuable and um, if for nothing else, I uh, uh, was friends with someone in there and we're still friends to this day. Mm-hmm. So I got a, a long lasting and good friendship. And um, yeah, it helped me learn a lot about things. Uh, it was a very short stay. I think it was just under a week. But I think it got to that point where I wasn't sure what could be done to help. And so knowing that I was in sort of that setting was probably the, the really the first day of towards my recovery, I think. You said that you voluntarily admitted yourself to hospital, John. You know, can you describe exactly how you were feeling at that point when you decided to do that? Yeah, what, what actually happened was it wasn't like a conscious decision that I made myself. Um, my, I'd gone to my GP and my GP had been reluctant to even give me any medication. And it was just things were just getting worse. I was living at home at the time. I wasn't getting any better whatsoever. And, um, you know, it was... Um, you know, um, I think my, my dad said, you know, if, if we could get you into hospital, would you go in? And I said, yes, absolutely. And um, we had to sort of um, 
have some words with the GP who wasn't too keen on it. But when when um, I went to the hospital and we had sort of like a, a brief interview with one of the medical staff, uh, straight away she recommended that I should stay in. Your parents were very days. supportive. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, my parents have always been very supportive and it's a very personal issue, so we never uh, really talked extensively about it. But, you know... Um, I'm very fortunate because I've got good I've got good parents and and they've always been there uh, for me and that and also my twin sister as well. So now you mentioned that uh, you almost had to have a fight with the GP to to have him agree to that. Is that does that again link through to just a, a sort of miscomprehension about what it is? Yeah, uh, this this was in the UK, by the way. I think I uh, just want to make that clear in case anybody thinks I'm talking about somebody over here. Mm. Um, so this was a uh, in, in England. And I think he probably, the doctor, I'm sure I'm my best interest at heart, and he probably w- wanted me to just try and, you know, sort of carry on with my normal life as much as possible. So I can sort of see his viewpoint, but it had got to the stage where, you know, I was really struggling to communicate. Um, I could barely speak. I mean, my voice was just a whisper. I, I couldn't write on, on the lines. I had like a diary and I couldn't even write on the lines, you know. It was just one big scrawl. Um, I certainly couldn't function. Um, you know, I couldn't concentrate on anything. I couldn't even watch television. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't really do anything. So something had to give, you know, and unfortunately we ended up, and, and it, it doesn't sound like a fortunate thing, but actually knowing that um, you had those medical staff, uh, staff on hand and, and we had experts to deal with it was was in some many ways a relief then. Can I ask what it's like for you today describing that time in your life? Well, it, it's really difficult because um, f- since uh, 2010, I've not had um, any episodes of depression at all. And in fact, you know, the life I lead and I, I love my life. I love every second of my life. I love my job. I have a loving family and everything. So I try not to... Uh, sort of obviously dwell on on the past but I think probably a day doesn't go by when I think about it because it had such a a big impact on my life and it's there's no word I think in the English language that has ever been created which could actually tell you how bad depression is I mean it's just it's something that I would never ever 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 wish to have again and I, I can't there might be nothing I can do about that in terms of, you know, I have had other episodes in the past, but I'm just trying to keep busy by enjoying myself as much as possible in mm. every second. You I'm know. sure you're very aware of the symptoms now that you feel as you know you're going towards maybe about a depression. But um, I have to ask you, did you at any point just feel that you didn't want to be here? Um, I, I think I was at the back of my mind this mentality of just you've just got to hang on in there. You know, and it was it was exceptionally tough because I just at its worst, I just couldn't function. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't you don't even feel part of the human race. It's just the 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 strangest, strangest thing. And um, but somehow deep down at the back of my mind, it, I just had, I don't know, maybe one brain cell of the many telling me other things saying, just hang on in there, you know. And uh, you've got to and I'm sure there is there's a lot of people right now listening who have depression and and what I would say is is take every second as it comes I mean literally every second don't be planning about next week or next month or whether you're off work sick or when you're going to get back to work you've got to look after yourself in the moment and just think about here and now uh, and the moment and and do anything that you can that might try and help alleviate the symptoms no matter how small that thing may be. 
What are some of the things that you've been able to turn to that have helped you alleviate your symptoms in the past? Well, um, I think now I'm, I'm generally good at sort of, I think it's important generally to look after our mental health. We often talk about physical health and people say, you know, eat a few apples or whatever and do all this sort of thing, which of course is important. But I think just keeping your, your mental health in check, if you, you know, every day we should feel happy. I think everyone should feel happy. If you don't feel happy during the day, I would say that that's going to ra raise some alarm bells there. Now, it might be because you're in a job you don't like or something. There might be a reason for that, and it might be something you can change. But with depression, certainly now, because as Joe said, I would recognise the symptoms. I mean, the first thing I would actually do would be... Um, seek medical assistance and again if there's people listening and you haven't done that and you're um, perhaps worrying about whether you should do it or not well this is what our GPs are there for they're experts in this now and please go and seek assistance and also confide in a friend or a family member who's going to be supportive that's really important as well. John, the rates have gone up hugely of people going to the doctors and being prescribed antidepressants. You know, do you look at that as maybe a good thing or do you think that doctors simply have got time and when they do see their patients and they see that they're suffering with the symptoms of depression, they kind of think, oh, we'll just put you on antidepressants, you'll be fine? Well, I think that's an excellent question because... Um, some people would definitely uh, see it that way that oh the doctors are just handing out all these drugs but there's a lot of um, misinformation when it comes to depression, um, depression because antidepressant medication does work for people and it can alleviate the symptoms um, there is an element I'm sure as in every area of the health service uh, both here and elsewhere where of course they, there is a limited amount of funds and certainly in any jurisdiction in the world it would be beneficial if there were more people involved in talking therapies music therapy art therapy these these things all help people too and just because medication helps one person it might not necessarily be the best solution for another do you mean the happy pill Yes, that best. <laughs> we were, yeah. I mean, me and Joe were just saying before we came on to air about this term happy pill, which I absolutely despise um, because we don't call um, chemotherapy for cancer sufferers cancer blasters, or we don't have these strange colloquial terms. Uh, and we don't just use them, you know, willy nilly, like, oh, I'm off to take some Prozac or something. Um, it's sort of really, I find it really dis distasteful because antidepressant um, medication is legitimate medication that is tested, that is certified that um, uh, helps millions of people uh, on this planet um, get well. So I think it's time we should cut out these um, really just offensive phrases and treat it like we have medication for thyroid. And, okay, so you know. why do you think so many people keep it that private that they are taking antidepressants? Because there are figures out there that say that one in three are now taking antidepressants because of the highly stressful lives that we live in. Why are people so private about it then? Well, unfortunately, there is still a degree of stigma. And it's ridiculous because we're like in the 21st century. It's not the dark ages. And uh, the way that some people approach this and they don't, they confuse the term depression with a mood as opposed to an illness. I mean, my own personal opinion on this is, as we now call manic depression bipolar disorder, we should call depression by its medical term of unipolar disorder. I think if we did that, that would help, first of all, because people, you know, you, you're going to come across people who you work with, you might be off work, and they'll think, oh, they're off with depression. I saw them down the shops, there's nothing up with them. 
because you've not got a cast on your arm mm. or, or a drip coming from you or something, it doesn't mean you're not you're not got a serious illness. And I read in the papers just yesterday that Catherine Zeta-Jones also has come out and explained very much openly about it, talked very openly about her bipolar, um, you know, that she has as well. And I think, you know, a lot of celebrities, unfortunately, when they start talking about it, people do start to open up. So I wonder whether now we're going to have a lot more people opening up about it too because she's come out to the papers and said it. You know, who knows? Well, I, I hope that is the case. And I, and I do think generally over the past 10 years, there has been a massive shift. So, you know, I'm not sort of... Of saying everything's doom and gloom with regards to stigma because more and more people are talking about this. You're going to have to go on Facebook. I'm sure everybody on Facebook have had friends who've said they've had depression and they're going to get more direct support from the friends. So things are definitely going in the right direction, but they need to go faster. And you mentioned support from friends. Now, that is something that if you haven't experienced this before yourself, it's very hard to know how to handle, deal, manage someone, whether it's friend, family, co-worker, who, who is going through this. What, what sort of advice would you give to someone? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. It's exceptionally difficult. And you just want your friend or a family member to be better. And, you, and it's difficult to understand why they're in that sort of frame of mind or why they're acting in a certain way. Um, the advice I would give is please, please, please be very, very patient. Please never say anything like snap out of it or pull yourself together because believe you me, if they could do that, they would have done that. You wouldn't say that to someone with cancer or someone who had a heart attack or someone with diabetes. But it just seems that some people still think it's appropriate to say that it's not. It's not something you can snap out of. It is something that you can get medication for. It's something you can have other treatment for. And sometimes it may just lift itself. But be super patient. And if you are the carer of someone with um, depression, make sure you look after yourself too. That's really important because you're doing a great job. And it's really, really important that you have time to relax and look after yourself. John Gregory, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for your honesty today. I know it will have reached an awful lot of people out there. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. Siobhan Malloy is a breastfeeding counsellor with La Leche League here on the Isle of Man and she told me why she thinks more Manx mums aren't feeding their babies themselves. We don't see people breastfeed. We don't see it as the cultural norm. So in societies in the world where it is the norm, people breastfeed and here we don't see it, so people don't do it. And of course, uh, you know, infant formula marketing is persuasive. It's everywhere. It's a massive industry. And they're doing their best to persuade people that the, the formula and breast milk are equal. I suppose it's, it's OK for you. Some people would say you've had four children and maybe you've found breastfeeding easy and natural to do. But that's not the case for everyone, is it? No, and actually that's not the case for me. That's how I got involved with La Leche League and why I really did want to become a breastfeeding counsellor. It was horrendous for me for the first child. Um, I probably cried and actually swore my way through the first six weeks of feeding. Um, I found an awful struggle, but I felt like I didn't want to give up. It made me more determined to dig my heels in, but equally made me understand how for some people they just think this is not the way it's supposed to be and and they have to stop because the pain is intense. So um, it's been a long road to get here. And yes, I've got my fourth one here. He's uh, asleep and I hope he stays like that. Um, and it's been easier this time, um, but it's not the case for everybody, right. From your point of view as somebody who has persevered, went through all that, the pain barrier yeah. and whatever, how do you feel when you see somebody bottle feeding a very tiny baby? I mean, can you honestly hand and heart say you're not judging her? I don't think that I 
I hope I hope that I don't judge them externally. I think we all make judgments in our head, certainly. Um, but I have given up on other things that some people uh, kept going with. Um, so, for example, <laughs> when I was pregnant with my first child, I said that, you know, we would never have the TV on till they were 16 at least. And now I like to turn it on at about 7 a.m. in the morning. You know, we all do things that we said we wouldn't. Now, from a medical point of view, there are a whole host of reasons why mothers are encouraged to feed if they can. Health benefits for both the woman and her baby, including things like a reduction in the likelihood of developing some cancers, diabetes, or even one of the current hot health topics, obesity. And that's the sort of thing that's pushed in news articles like the one we've just been hearing about. So I asked Siobhan what difference this being in the headlines again actually made in her opinion. It's not actually new research. They published this in 2013 and that information and the knowledge has been there for years. We've known this all along. Um, Yes, and I think what they said this time was that it's not just, as we sometimes think of it, it's not just in poorer countries where the lives can be saved. We're talking about over 800,000 children's lives, but also 20,000 mothers' lives who can be saved. If you could save one mother's life from this, it's worth doing. So it's it's not new research, it's just a collation of all the research. Um, it's the biggest study that's been done, or it's the biggest gathering of all the information. For many mums I know, one of the things that worries the most about breastfeeding is having to do it in public. A few years ago, legislation was passed over here to protect the rights of breastfeeding mothers when they're out. What difference has that made? Well, here's Nicole Hara again. It's difficult to put a number on it, but certainly anecdotally, when I talk to mums, when mums come um, to our local breastfeeding groups, they say that it's reassuring to know that they can feed their babies um, in the way that they choose, you know, out and about, because it can be very isolating as a new mum with a a small baby and feeling a bit self-conscious about the whole breastfeeding process until they get used to it. So to actually know that that they can feed anywhere at all is is really helpful. And of course, alongside that, we use the local scheme with the little stickers that are on on display in lots of cafes and places, uh, pharmacies, uh, doctor surgeries, everywhere around the Isle of Man, you can look out for the breastfeeding welcome stickers as well. So that, again, gives another level of reassurance to mums that they can feed wherever they need to. But there are still going to be people who, if they're honest, feel deeply uncomfortable with seeing a mother breastfeeding their baby, or those who say it's okay as long as it's discreet, whatever that means. Jo, your thoughts on this? Um, You can only relate to your own situation, I suppose, and as we do so often on the show, um, my experience of breastfeeding wasn't great, and yes, it definitely makes me feel guilty reading it. You know, you're born with the label guilt on your head when um, when you give birth to a baby, sorry, you're not born with it. But um, yeah, I, I find it very, very difficult to discuss, actually, because I used to always, always say to my ex-husband, you know, if women in third world countries can do this, why can't I? And um, I literally was told by my midwife to stop breastfeeding because it was causing me so much anxiety and upset because it was so, so sore and my baby was not taken to it whatsoever. So I managed the three days on both uh, my children, but I think a lot of people struggle with it because obviously we've talked about, you know, doing it in public. I mean, I always used to remember that, you know, rushing into John Lewis toilets with a baby and you'd see mothers sat on the side with, um, you know, the the babies on their knees and breastfeeding and you just felt as if they had to go to a toilet to do it. 
The other thing is I believe is that a lot more women are sociable these days and something else comes to my head is that you can't drink, you can't take any medicine when you are breastfeeding and I just wonder whether this sways their opinion on actually breastfeeding now because people are going out more so you can actually get back to obviously drinking, you can get out to having a bit more of life because your husband or your boyfriend, your partner can do the bottle feeding. I, I don't know, I just wonder if maybe women look at their life and are a bit more selfish these days, possibly, I don't know. I think um, Siobhan Malloy came up with the the thing during the package that we heard before the break and saying that it's not culturally acceptable because we don't see it all the time everywhere, therefore we don't expect it to happen. And I wonder if that's why more women aren't encouraged to do it. Yeah, possibly. I mean, we're talking about developing countries and how the percentages are so much higher. I think it's something like, was it 97% in parts of Africa women? I mean, partly, I suppose that is because there are no other options. It's not like you can, you know, I've got a message from a friend of mine saying it's not like you can nip down the shops and get some formula. And that's true. So maybe that is part of it is, like you said, it's just not around as much because it doesn't need to be because there are other options and the other thing is you know on this side of the world we're just not very good with being out there with our bodies you know in Britain we're we're quite um sensitive and reserved Mm. yeah I think and at the end of the day whether you're breastfeeding or not breastfeeding it is still a breast and I think that's why people do feel slightly uncomfortable about it oh your heckles are up Beth and I haven't even said anything yet I'm not a mum I haven't breastfed and I have I would never ever deter a woman from breastfeeding I think it is very important if you are able but I would also never push a woman into it because too many of my friends have had difficulties but I do think in regards to the public nature of breastfeeding I just think everyone should be considerate of everyone else and if you are sitting at a table and you need to breastfeed if you notice that in the table next to you someone does obviously seem uncomfortable about it what does it really matter if you maybe move your top or your scarf over to to make it slightly more discreet i think oh, you see that's the word that really irritates me discreet because in my experience i have never seen a woman feeding her baby just waving a breast around it just yeah, doesn't happen so. it's no, really? well, not while you're feeding because the baby's head would cover the breast but it's you know some women i think maybe push it a bit much the other way to sort of almost i've I, honestly i have seen people sort of almost make a point of it of going right i'm going to breastfeed now here's my breast and literally sort of kind of take it out in a very very obvious and way and why do you think they feel that they have to do that because people have an issue with it just get over it they are just feeding their baby would you rather it sat there crying no 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 I, I said I have no issue with them actually breastfeeding <laughs> you are so she's mean she's on a high horse she's, on, <laughs> she's had too much coffee um, no I have no issue with the actual breastfeeding I think it's just the manner in which you do it if, if me as a member of the general public or anyone else is expected to be considerate to the person that's breastfeeding I think what's wrong with them being considerate to me as well if I, I, if I have an issue I don't but if I, I can did. understand Christy's point you know Beth because Christy's not got children and you know it goes down to motherhood kind of people feeling as if they've got the right all the time because they've had these babies you know and I think people that haven't had children just think you know what some of us haven't had children we don't we don't actually need to see these things I'm going to ask you though you've had three children so how about you you know how do you feel about being out in public with your three when you were having when you were feeding them well when I had my first I was probably quite self-conscious and felt you know oh gosh I better be as discreet as possible by the time I got to the third I wasn't any less discreet but I was willing somebody to come up and say something to me um, if they felt uncomfortable about it and actually nobody did exactly so isn't part of it actually a bit of paranoia in the first place because I don't know many women who ever actually have had anyone come up to them and say anything I do know people 
Facebook I've seen and it's a, it's a clip actually and it's done in America and it's really interesting and um, it's people being sat in a bench in the shopping mall and um, you know the difference of way people are actually treated and in a couple of situations there are actually people that go up to this woman who's breastfeeding and say actually do you mind not doing that here I don't want to see it and it's uh, a really interesting clip we've had mm. a text in from Chris actually saying has anyone ever seen the awful footage of a guy in the underground having a go at a woman breastfeeding she and the baby are totally covered so no nudity but he just goes off on one it starts to get very aggressive and other people come to protect her he could move but he doesn't um, it's worth seeing that clip he says only to see how total strangers come to her aid and you know I do see what you mean maybe there is some paranoia Christy amongst um, breastfeeding women but surely it should just be accepted if you choose to feed your baby that way you should be able to feed them wherever they need to be fed without I feeling that you're making agree. anybody else uncomfortable I fully agree with you and that, that's not my point I fully agree with you I, Susie I, Walker I think you equally have to say that if people don't want to feed their baby for whatever variety of choices people don't always want to breastfeed I don't have any children and I have never breastfed any any, any baby but I um, you know there is a lot of guilt associated with people there who is. are using bottles as well and I think Absolutely. you just have to be really mindful of people's choices why they're making those choices and and making sure that their health visitors gives gives all those options really mm. I spoke a lot on the show about having postnatal depression and one of the reasons why is because I couldn't breastfeed my child and I felt so so guilty about it I really did and that was from other people's comments and mm. we've got lots of thoughts on this um, let's just hear this one and then we'll come to some more um, just after the next break but somebody's texted in to say I was crushed my, by my inability to breastfeed despite my best efforts incidentally formula adverts stress the superiority of breast milk and they used to make me feel horribly sad and guilty as I say lots more comments on the Women's Day Facebook page well our studio guests this afternoon are Kirsten Jackson, Jackson who's regional coordinator for Look Good Feel Better and also we have Wendy Smith here with us who is Shoal Wellbeing Centre Manager. Hello ladies, thank you very much Hello. for joining Hello. us. Thank you. How are you both today? Very well, thanks. Thank you. Good. So let's just start off by finding out about Look Good, Feel Better. I mean it sounds fairly self-explanatory from the title uh, but it was born out of something called Radiance. Is that right Wendy? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, um, we started Radiance six years ago. Um, it was a group of volunteers and myself and we all got together with a lady called Lindsay who um, I suppose was our first patient advocate for this and um, we really wanted to make this work for the island for other people going through treatment who were going to lose their hair and the side effects of treatment so it was our first step in the right direction and we are still going six years down the road. Yeah. So what so do you actually do? What we do at the workshops is we provide an environment that we make women look good and feel fabulous, look good and feel better. Um, these, this programme and these workshops are for any woman out there with a cancer diagnosis or in treatment. They could have lost their hair, they could have lost their brows, they might still have the hair, but chances are they've lost their confidence. So what we do is we build um, confidence through the power of makeup. So we show the ladies how to draw the brows on, how to apply makeup to make the best out of your natural features. Like we all do every day when you're putting your makeup on, you go with colours that suit you, colours that don't suit you, you wouldn't go near. Um, and we create an environment so wonderful that these ladies feel comfortable enough to either take the wigs off or they bounce off each other, don't they? They talk to each other and they... Sp I'm having this side effect, I'm having that side effect. And it's lovely for those two hours, they're in a box away from the reality of what's going on. And it's lovely because they share that experience together. So you actually, as Kirsten says, you see them bouncing off each other. You actually see, maybe by this time we've run the second workshop, that people are so confident they'll take off their wigs and they'll sit there 
And I think the other side that you never actually recognise until you see people without their eyebrows is how it frames the face. Mm -hmm. So when you see people suddenly put their eyebrows, you know, they're drawing their eyebrows on, they do it so delicately, or if we help, it might not be that they look like sisters anymore, their eyebrows, they might look slightly different, and it's a good giggle. But actually it's about building confidence and being there. It is so important, I think, isn't it, as a, as a woman to know that you can you can be confident in your appearance. And until you go through something like this, you know, I, as a, as a ginger, uh, I'm very <laughs> conscious of the fact that I very, very rarely let anybody see me without mascara. And yet there are women out there who may have lost their eyelashes, you know, yeah. and so can't even do anything about that. So and you help with every sort of aspect yeah, of that. Every aspect of it as well. It's a, ultimately, our goal is to make these women feel good. By the time they leave, they should be feeling fabulous and confident and that's what we that's that's our goal that's what we want for these women they're going through a tough enough time as it is so we provide we sit them down we have a 12-step program that we follow that starts off with skincare and then finishes on lipstick and obviously as you're saying you know sort of when you meet these people and you are going through all of these products with them and talking through all everything they can do to make themselves feel more confident you are then also learning about them as people mm -hmm. and and you, you really enjoy that nature of the the work don't I, you i actually feel privileged Mm. completely privileged that these ladies we create an environment, I know I've said that but the ladies feel comfortable enough to open up to us and they tell us their journey, they tell us from diagnosis to where they are now and I feel privileged that they share that information with me mm. and I feel quite honoured that they want to share that information with me, I know that's something that we've spoken about mm. in the past that, um, we do feel privileged to hear that and sometimes it can be hard to hear that story but sometimes it can have a wonderful outcome as well and we get to meet the family and the husband sometimes because sometimes the husband sits out in reception for two hours patiently waiting on his wife so women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away First, though, we can only assume that actors Dakota Johnson and Leslie Mann must have had a fairly long day in the press junket promoting their new movie, How to Be Single, because by the time reporter Chris Van Vele from WSVN got to them, the pair's behaviour became more than a little inappropriate. We've posted this on our Facebook page, but just to give you an idea if you have not yet seen it, Here's a little section of the interview. Are you single? I am single. You're handsome. Wow, thank you. <laughs> Tell me more. You're, you have cute socks. You look like Barbie. you have really big muscles. Barbie! Olivia! You guys! Look! Hot guy! Hot guy! This is amazing! <laughs> Hi. <laughs> wow, good to meet you. I can't Barbie, find anyone in, in Miami. <laughs> Hi, I'm Olivia. <laughs> this is Barbie. Barbie's gonna knock her out of the way. Wait, where are you from? Uh, Miami. Oh, forget it. He lives in Miami. Oh, sorry. I mean, I. This, this he can move. Do you work out a lot? You yeah, look like you work out. Like you pump. No, I just wear really yeah. small clothes. You get swelled up. Yeah, that's, that's really it. Can you take off your shirt? Which one? All of them. All of it. Sure. <laughs> I can start with the jacket here. <laughs> I do it seductively. Yeah, maybe, you maybe, guys. I'll, maybe I'll undo one button. One button. How suit. about two buttons? Two buttons. Oh, it's two more buttons? Suit. Yes. Otherwise, we won't speak. Yeah. Oh, dear me. And this is only a few weeks after cricketer Chris Gale was fined $10,000 by the Melbourne Renegades for his inappropriate and disrespectful comments towards female reporter Mel McLaughlin. Here's a quick reminder of what happened then. Incredibly aggressive approach for you two. It looks like you're absolutely just smashing this innings. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I want to come and have an interview with you as well. That's the reason why I'm here, so just to see your eyes for the first time. It's nice, so... Hopefully we win this game and we can have a drink after. Don't blush, baby. I'm not, I'm not blushing. Um, did you, 
Any injuries? Did you have any of the boys were saying maybe you picked up a bit of a twinge in your hamstring? So there you go. Very different use of language there, I think. But uh, yeah, we've had some interesting comments on this on our Facebook page. Uh, in fact, this has caused a bit of a kind of stir in the news department as well. And we have young Chris, Chris Caves come up here to talk to us about it. What are your thoughts on it, Chris? I think it, um, it shows the hypocritical side. Hang on, hang on. Side. Can you just, before you go any further, uh, I think Joe wanted oh, to say something. No, honestly, it's, uh, I just, just have to say, are your parents traffic wardens? Because you've got fine written all over you, Chris. Hey? <laughs> Hey, you're looking good today. Oh, Joe. Do you know what? There's uh oh, do you, I'm wondering I just, if I need to put her mic down. Yeah, I'm a bit I, worried. Do you have a band-aid? Because I just scraped my knee falling for you. Hey? Okay, you take that enough. shirt down. That's, I feel oh, really button, uncomfortable now. The button, take the button off. Before we talk to you, Chris, can you take your button? Yeah? Don't blush, baby. <laughs> see, 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 it's fine. Seriously though, Chris, what were your thoughts on this story? Um, I think it shows the hypocritical side of feminism. I think um, what Chris Gale said to the female interviewer was about the eyes. Nothing sexual there. Um, whereas the women were talking to the male interviewer and they sort of ogled at his body. Whereas if that was the other way around, you know, my eyes are up here, he oh, should have said. That's good for radio to point where your eyes are. <laughs> well, I'd imagine most people might have an idea. Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, but it's where they're looking at, isn't it? You know what? Come on, let's think about this. What's the film called? It's called How to Be Single. You know what? If this was an interview that was taking place about more of a serious film, then I would totally understand why there must be an outrage about it. I can completely understand that. The guy is loving it. Let's just be clear on that one. He is obviously enjoying it and he's going with it. And it's done his ego no harm at all because um, he clearly is loving it. But it's about the film. They're getting, it's just marketing. It's getting themselves all over. If you Google this now, they are all over the internet for what they have done. And, um, you know, yes, I can see if we compare it to the sporting incident people may be saying it's right for women to do it but actually that woman was incredibly uncomfortable when she was being spoken to he was loving it that's he, the difference he, do, here. he does actually use the phrase at one point oh tell me more yeah. when they they speak to him in that way so chris come back to but you don't know the reaction before you ask the question do you or make the comment so yeah um, you don't know how he's going to react to it and don't forget this has been highly edited can i just say as well as a video clip that we've seen so you don't know he may have turned around at the beginning and say come on girls do your best the film's about how to be single you can work your magic on me Interestingly, though, he it said afterwards that he was quite annoyed because he didn't get to ask the questions he wanted to ask because the interview was cut short because of all of that banter. And also this afternoon, our guests could be described as being Manx as the Hills. And as I mentioned in a little bit, we are going to be talking about exactly what that means to you. But for some people, it centres on language. And that's what Ned Kenyuk and John Dog Collister are so passionate about. And they're here this afternoon to hopefully encourage like-minded people to get together to save the Manx dialect. Now, Ned Kenyuk, where did this all come from? Well, this is a... Uh, um a lifelong held ambition to preserve the way of life that I was brought up in. And I'm seeing it being watered down, not deliberately, but as a matter of fact that the Manx people, the genuine Manx people, are becoming a minority. And our, our customs and our ways are being, yes, watered down, I think, is a good word. They're not disappearing. I think a lot of them will disappear because... We are living in a mixed race community now and we have to acknowledge that. But I am determined 
to if the, if our customs and our dialect is to disappear, I'm not going to let it go without putting up some sort of a fight to protect it. And uh, your comrade in this fight is going to be Dog. Yeah, I'm constantly ringing up and correcting people. Are you? Uh, <laughs> I hadn't noticed. I've never had one of the... Oh, no, I uh, have. Well, I actually, yeah. uh, some of the presenters saying, um, if if I got it wrong, John Dog will ring up. And, and I, I, I take a lot of pride out of that because it's use it or lose it. And if it's not wrong, if, if you were in Kirkubri and called it Kirk Cudbright, how far would you get? You'd get nowhere. Yeah, on Manx Radio, they tend to, tend to say things that are completely wrong. And I'm getting at Manx Radio here. But anyway, that's what that's what gets my goat. But the thing is, is that some people just say things differently, don't they? And even in the, here in the Isle of Man, you've got, you know, very distinct, you've got the northern accent, you've got the southern accent. So not everybody can be wrong. Surely some of it is about interpretation. It, it, it is. But words like just murak, it's not more rag. It's, it's never been more rag. And it shouldn't be more rag. You shouldn't. If I went, as I say, to live in Kirkubri and I started calling it Kirk Goodbright, they would they would soon say that's wrong, and you'd be drummed out. But it seems to be, it can be said here, and oh, that's how we say it now. And it, as I say, gets my goat. We have in the past year lost some very well-known people, passionate and renowned for their love of the language and their accents. And I'm thinking about Lawrence Kermode and your own brother Ned, John Kenyuk. How significant are those sort of losses? I don't. I, I think, without being, I, you you will accuse me of being biased, I suppose. But I don't think John will ever be replaced because he had a passion that is not just for Manx Radio, not just for countryside, but for life in the Isle of Man. And he inherited some of that from from his from our father. Um, my father went to the pub regularly, Monday, Thursday, Saturday. And he had, a, he had a following in the pub. Now, as regularly as he went to that, he went to chapel on Sunday night. Now, the following he had in the Methodist chapel on Sunday was just as loyal to him as the people. Now, John had the ability to say the right thing at the right time to whatever audience he was in. And that was always based on his patriotism for the Isle of Man. Always based on that. And that, that was his life skill. That's, and, but better than that, he was able to put it over. Uh, in in a in a manner that people could take it in and appreciate what he was trying to say. Blowing a hooli out there, yes sir. A sheep just flew past the window. I love the TT. I wear a leather jacket two weeks in June. Drive all the way to Douglas. I live in Union Mills. It's a bit fresh out there, by. I believe it's giving a force aid gale. Wasp. Wasp. Peel Road's got a couple of potholes. Peel Road will be shut two years <laughs> uh, just uh, some little comments which uh, that's June um, McGuinness and Ben Watterson there we're talking this afternoon about what it means to be Manx and uh, speaking with Ned Kenick and John Dog Collister who really want to get a group of like-minded people together to help preserve the Manx dialect the Manx accent and really I guess uh, from what you've been saying Ned Kenick just to to make sure that we don't lose that essence of Manxness, Manxness and, and you're pretty fed up with the way some people are talking not so much fed up, but um, I feel strongly enough about it. And there is another element that comes into it here. Um, I'm of an age now, and I'm not sure about John Dog, but I think he's not far behind me. Um, it's, I think it's incumbent on our generation to do this. 
because I don't think, while our children have been brought up in this idiom, they will be fewer on the ground and there will be more, not opposition, but pressure on them to preserve this. So I, I feel it incumbent on me to make an effort to, to, to put a mark in the sand and say, I would like this recorded for posterity, that this is how we lived. Um, we've had a, a text in uh Referring to your accent, Dog, um, you're from the north of the island and uh, John who's texting says, I'm Manx and from Douglas, the capital, and we don't talk like him. It's regional. Surely a man of his age should know that. It's like that all over the world and it is called dialect. And it's a point that we, we picked up on before. Um, and so really, surely there is no right or wrong way to be speaking. You just speak the way you do. Yeah, um, but we've, we've been talking about lots of words. I, I mentioned Tinwall. Uh, whether you're from Douglas or from... Douglas as well, and not <laughs> Douglas. Uh, but if you're from Douglas or Ramsey, you know you you might say words differently. But you've still, they, I mentioned Tinwald, and I'll say it again: it's Tinwald, not Tinwald. And and they're subtly different now. It, to me, it doesn't. It's not right. It, if I used before Kirkubri, if I said if I lived in Kirkubri, okay, dialects have got to change. And I said Kirkudbright, I, I wouldn't last long, because it's wrong. Do you know what John what I think is interesting is what when we were talking earlier even less about just the sort of simple pronunciation of things the thing that I think is brilliant that we're talking about sort of trying to preserve here is the idioms that you mentioned because wherever you're from in the Isle of Man there are terms that we were talking about in that room there like grinning and bravig and words like that that it doesn't matter which part of the island you're from they are solely Manx words it's not Manx language it's just an idiom isn't it and so you know the idea of bravig being warm your bum against the fire or whatever it means there is no other place in the world that would have that one word to mean that entire phrase and i think that's something that is definitely worth preserving somehow isn't it joe i don't know you but saw your motherhood post thank you so much for highlighting what you have while i dearly love my friend's children and my own stepdaughter i found this particular posting personally hard Pregnant once, but a missed miscarriage at 12 weeks, and then a new wonderful husband who, though a father, can no longer father in the healthy sperm sense. This motherhood post was, for me, an unnecessary reminder of my failings. And that's an anonymous anonymous comment from somebody who sent me a private message, and it's amongst many that I've had over the last 48 hours. The reason for it, well, if you haven't seen it already, it's bound to come on your newsfeed at some point very soon. It's called the Motherhood Challenge, and I'm afraid I got on my high horse a little bit this week. So what I put on Facebook, and it took me a long time to think about whether I should do this or not, um, I simply wrote... Thanks for the Motherhood Challenge nomination. I'm afraid I won't be doing it as I'm thinking of those who struggle with motherhood, can't have children or have lost children or don't even have a partner to have kids with. Call me what you like, but I may be on my high horse here. I nominate those who do struggle to talk more about it and the rest of us to think about the other types of women described above. Apologies if I have offended anyone, but some of these nominations do my head in and please feel free to share this statement. Um, I really, really feel that Facebook is great for many things, but this is the one thing that stirred me this week and um, ultimately you know the motherhood challenge is not any different to any regular facebook post as far as i'm concerned really apart from it's being called a challenge why a challenge that to me spells competition is there a need to have competition between mothers whenever we post something on social media and um, there's a slight narcissism with it i think whether it's read what i wrote look at my photos look at me look at my house look at my holiday well you've got the idea yes stuff on social media can be just ignored if you want to but 
If you don't like it, you just keep scrolling on. So over the last week, I was debating about whether to put something up. And I tell you what, it's created a huge, huge stir. Here's another one of the comments I've received. I've been inspired by Joe Pack to write this open letter to the motherhood challenge. Please just take a minute to think about the sensitive nature of this subject before you tag and repost about it. Be sensitive for the people who are mums but struggle with coping, depression and being strong. Be sensitive for those for whom motherhood is an unobtainable dream. Be sensitive for those who are privileged to have become a mum, who love their children but want to keep their experiences private. And finally, be sensitive for the mothers who have lost children. We all know someone who fits one of these descriptions. Let's not trivialise this subject by another thoughtless Facebook trend. So that actually brought me to tears. Um, you know, the, the motherhood challenge can be looked at in such a great way too because I understand, you know, no one intends to be insensitive and I know it's just another reminder sometimes that life can just be a little bit unfair but there's been a lot, a lot of messages to me on this, a lot of comments um, and it's also got me pondering on these few questions about it. If you haven't been tagged, does it make you feel a bad mum? If you are a woman but aren't a mum, whether by choice or by circumstance, does that make you less important because you can't join in on the party? If you are a mum who's lost a baby or a child, do your friends not tag you for fear of upsetting you? And by tagging X amount of your friends, are you saying your mum friends you haven't tagged aren't good mums? That's just my particular point of view on it. But Christy, I'd be really interested to hear what you think of it. Uh, it's interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way until you posted it. And I think that's what a lot of people have said to you, haven't they? They've, they've come back and said, you know what? Either I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'm glad you pointed it out, or I had thought of it that way, but I was too scared to say something. So first of all, I think it's, it's, a, it's a brave thing to put out there. Very interesting from the point of view of the fact that you are a mother and you still made that connection. But I think, um, yeah, it, it's a bit... We live in a really peculiar time with sort of living on Facebook and through Facebook. And it seems like everything we do has to get posted up there to say, I've done this today. I've done that today. And da, 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 whether it's what you eat, whether it's like you say, where you've been on holiday, all these sort of achievements and successes. Or some people do use it to post if they're having a difficult time, you know. So I don't know. We do just seem to live through Facebook. And I think that's one of those times where it's quite unhealthy. Perhaps as well, we just put too much weight on it and sometimes I do think we need to just take a step back and say do you know what that's fine that's their life if they want to do that that's absolutely fine I'm just going to move away and realize that it doesn't really impact me you know and sometimes I just think we need to take a step back from it but yeah I can totally understand where some of those people are coming from with their comments and listen don't get me wrong I'm no angel I put stuff on Facebook oh, you and go Surely look don't. at me and Valencia watching the MotoGP everybody wish you were here you know I'm guilty too I am and sometimes I think ah, that's not a very good role model for my teenage daughter I also got one more text in which I just want to think you know I think this sums it up um Regarding your post um, on the idiotic motherhood challenge, I never post much, but what I will contribute to your debate is that when I want to tell my kids I love them or are proud of them, I tell them to their faces. I never understand the gushing posts of the right eulogising about their children. Certainly my own kids aren't even old enough to be on Facebook, so for whose benefit is this all for anyway? Mm. I think that sums it up. But Wendy, Kirsten, do you have a view on it? Um, I'm not a prolific user of Facebook, although I have an account. But I think in many respects, sensitivity is, I think, the word for the day, really. I don't see what's an actual challenge about it. I really don't. I'm speaking from someone who doesn't have children, mm -hmm. hoping that at some point in my life that will happen. 
So it's lovely to see all my friends with their yummy mummy posts and all these beautiful babies and it makes me really happy. I have friends, very special friends in my life who have struggled with fertility and they have a happy ending to it. But then, like you say, I also have other friends who have had lost children or who have had a really troublesome journey when it comes to being a mum. So it's a very, very 50-50. There's nothing challenging about it. I don't know why it's called a challenge, if I can be honest. It's a very, the thing is, I suppose, you know, we do all post all kinds of positive things about our lives on Facebook. I think it's just that, you know, the, the motherhood aspect is so very, very sensitive, isn't it? And I think it is something that people are more likely to react to a bit more than, well, they've got to go on a nice holiday, but I can't afford one. You know, it is a bit different. It's There's a lot more kind of seriousness about that, I think. And you, I mean, do you want to, you've got more comments there, I Joe, have got, as well. I mean, I could be here for the whole show reading out comments, you know, good and, and you know, towards mm-hmm. it. And people who have got lots of points of view which is always great here um, because you may relate to this it says it's one of those things that makes me feel like there's a party I haven't been invited to or a club which I can't be a member of you don't understand you're not a mother happy for those who are but spare thought maybe for those online trends for those who aren't can't have been struggle etc thank you thanks for listening to our best bits of the week if you missed any of last week's programmes and would like to hear them in full, you can listen on demand at manxradio.com for seven days after broadcast. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at MR Women Today. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.